Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Green. On today's episode, the tables are turned as my co-host Shauna Ang interviews me, a classically trained photographer, about my own art practice, my thoughts on art education, and the overbaked debate of film versus digital. Hi, Mason. Hey, Sean. Hello. It is my turn to interview you. How are you feeling about this? I don't know yet. We're going to see. You have you have come into this podcast and completely just taken it over. <laughs> Oops. As, as I am wont to do with most things in my life. I mean, listeners will realize that I open every podcast by naming only myself as the host. So... You are forever listed as co-host and co-producer, but... And I will never forgive you for this. That's fine. Okay, so it's time to harass you and talk about your art so everyone can get to know you better, and when they disagree with you, they understand why. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your kind of first experience in the fine art photography world? Um, And fine art in particular? In a general broad sense, even photography. Sure, um... It's always a funny thing to talk about because I was I was actually talking to my mom about this the other day. Um, it, there was never any question that I was going to be an artist of some kind. I, like before, you know, and, and this isn't necessarily unusual, but before I could write, um, as soon as I figured out how to hold a pen, I was, I was drawing and was always drawing everywhere, everywhere that I went. Um, and I was always really fascinated in cartoons and, um, in music and, and I was really, I'm a really mechanical person. So I I was really into Legos when I was a kid. And so I was always, I always just had creative projects, but photography always fascinated me as this sort of magical thing that existed. And, and I was curious about it from, a very young age. I remember watching the animated Spider-Man cartoon and he had a, uh, you know, a little single lens reflex that he used to take pictures of Spider-Man for J. Jonah Jameson. And <laughs> I, um, I remember being really fascinated by that thing, you know, and, and, and I was super into superheroes when I was a little kid. So it was like, Oh, I want to be just like Spider-Man. You know, he's this, weird, nerdy, skinny kid, um, during the day, which I am too. And then, and he takes pictures and then he also gets to do these cool things. So, um, so I was fascinated in it, but photography was never a, it was always like a secondary thing. Like it was this, this hobby or this fascination until maybe high school. I took a, a photo class and, thought, oh, well, I can use this as a tool in my other sort of graphical arts. Like I can work it into writing comics or I can work it, I can become a graphic designer or something like that. Um, And it wasn't until I got to college that, or maybe my senior year of high school that I went, oh, this is where it's at. This is what I should be doing. And and this medium allows me to do all of the things that I don't feel like I can do with pen and ink or um, well, digital drawing wasn't really a thing then, but, um, you know, or, or with, I was never much of a painter and I wasn't a sculptor. So, um. <laughs> so, but then you did enter undergrad as a graphic design major, right? And then changed mm-hmm. your mind. What happened there? 
Yeah. Um, we had just moved back across the country. Um, my family lived in Pennsylvania for middle school and high school. And I came back my senior year of high school. So I didn't really want to move away for college. I had just gotten back. Um, and I, like, I'd just gotten a job and I had, or I'd had a job for most of my senior year, I guess. But like, you know, and I, I built up a little group of friends and, and so I applied to Sac State and only Sac State and got in. Very lucky. I knew that I couldn't go to community college because if I did, I'd get bored and wander off. Um, so I, I had it in my head that I had to go to a four-year immediately. And I wanted to do graphic design because somebody told me that that was a good way for a creative to build a career. That was a good Makes money. career path. Right. It was a practical sort of choice. If, you, if you're going to be an artist and you have the talents that um, and, and the sort of skill set that you have, uh, you should go be a graphic designer. So I went to orientation and at Sac State, it's a two day thing or it was, I, I, it's not this year. I'm sure. I don't know what it looks like anymore, but, but when I went in 2009, it was like a two day thing and you, um, you got to tour and meet all of the clubs and everything. And then you went to the aquatic center that they have and you spent the night in the dorms and then the next day you signed up for classes under um, sort of supervision. Mm -hmm. But part of that experience on the first day was like meeting your, the head of faculty for your department. And I went in and I sat for the graphic design introduction and they handed a list of classes that you had to take. And it was this four year plan of like, this is where you need to be at every step of the way. And if you, because the, the program was impacted and if you missed any of these things, you were out and here are the internships that you need. What do you mean by out? As in like you couldn't be in the major anymore or just like you're set back a year. You were set back a year at least. Um, and, uh, if you didn't pass the two year, um, portfolio review, like you would have to apply again the next semester or next year. Um, and I, realized that I really didn't want to have my life planned out for me like that. And I also realized how much of it was, or I started to get a sense in that how much of graphic design is really being a business person in a way that I'm not um, built for, really configured for. So a lot of the same introductory classes are shared between graphic design and photography. And I thought, well, I enjoy doing that. So I'm going to go do that. And that turned out to be um, not only a good decision, but probably the, the right decision all along. So do you want to talk about what your undergraduate experience learning about photography was like? Yeah. Um, I was the last graduating class at Sac State before they impacted the photo program because there were so many students who took it because if you were a graphic design major and you missed out on a portfolio review or something, it was really easy to switch over to photography. Mm. So a lot of people did that. They'd drop out of the graphic design program and move over to photography. Or they wanted to study art, but they were undeclared, and it got to the point that they had to be declared. So they declared photo because they thought it would be easy, or they thought that it would be fun or whatever. So 
I was in a really diverse group of people, some of whom were super serious and many of whom were not. But it also meant that I couldn't get into any of the classes that I needed to get into, any of the intermediate classes. So I ended up um, sort of taking my photo program backwards in a lot of ways. You took like your advanced classes because you could squeeze them in first. What I remember happening was there were a handful of sort of intermediate level classes that I just couldn't get into. They were full. And so I petitioned faculty to let me get into other classes that I didn't necessarily have all the prerequisites for, but I had the skill set for, and I already knew what to do. So I ended up taking these higher level theory classes, which is really what I excelled at anyway, right? It was like the conceptual stuff and, and the sort of free reign stuff. Ended up taking those sophomore year, junior year. And then in my senior year, I had all these leftover intermediate classes that I could finally get into, but that I had gone so far beyond thinking about. <laughs> and loathed every second of it, yeah? Yeah, it was it was rough. And I was totally that kid who had all of the answers, right? Because a lot of times I did. Um, and I was bored and I was, and I was bored at Sac State, you know, I just struggling through the general ed stuff, which were classes that I had already taken in high school. Right. No interest in. Right. So, and, and even the ones that I had interest in, I was taking them at a level that like was, was at or lower than what I was doing in high school. So I was just bored and I was that kid who was had an answer to every question and then pretty soon I wasn't allowed to answer any questions and um I must have been I don't I sometimes I think I must have just been awful to have in a class. I would not want to have me as a student. And I think that a lot of people who go into teaching have that realization at some point. Well it's a vicious cycle that you will forever perpetuate now. <laughs> well there aren't any teaching jobs so maybe I'll uh miss that we'll see we'll see there's hope um so then why after all of that did you get a master's why did you sub- subject yourself to more school because you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree in photo mm. which we find in a lot of artistic fields right yeah. that whether or not a skill set or not it's you need it on on your paper resume bare minimum to get the kind of minimum entry job into the actual field you want Right. I mean, it's the issue where everybody has a bachelor's degree um, and the humanities, right? And so I shouldn't say that you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree, but you couldn't do any of the things that I was interested in. And I also was really, I graduated undergrad and started working in coffee, which became a sort of first career. And I ended up just sort of directionless because I didn't, I didn't know how to do anything with photo. I I didn't know anybody um, in journalism. I had lost interest in fashion photography. I was very much an artist, right? And and I identified that way. And I didn't have any business acumen at 23, 24. And I wasn't any good at social media, so I wasn't like going to blow up. And, and, and my work was not, doesn't, always translate very well to that anyway. Um, and so I saw getting a master's and going the route of education as an opportunity to sort of fund the things that I want to do, have access to research tools, and also support things that I care a lot about, which are 
like education in the arts and photographic literacy and and um and artistic literacy and the the easiest way to sort of create a career on that is to get a master's and go teach um so that that's what did it and i also really missed the mm-hmm. sort of community that comes with going to school and and i missed critiques and i missed that daily grind well so before we kind of launch into your appraisal of your master's experience you kind of touched on what the genesis of this interview is about and that's about the pedagogy of photography which is something i have zero conception and knowledge of and you know i have yet to see a movie glamorize the art of teaching <laughs> photography right so i would say in many ways i think most people are kind of like don't you just pick it up and take a picture so can you explain your experience in learning photography on even just a strictly technical level all the way to you know your examinations of higher thought and art that is a big couple of questions rolled into one but um yes yeah like in undergrad i studied under uh nigel poor and douglas dirtinger and Sharman goff who are all phenomenal photographers in their own ways and uh, and very different photographers um and so they all have a very different kind of approach to that pedagogy um none of which i necessarily really clicked with interesting just because of who i am and 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 how i work but my experience being 30 i am at the very tail end of people who learned in a darkroom who studied um mm-hmm. classically in a darkroom and is that just foregone completely now um no not entirely it, a lot of community colleges still fund it um at least here in California. Um, but it's disappearing because it costs a lot of money to have those facilities and there isn't a whole lot of interest. And there's this perception that it's not practical knowledge to have, which is totally misguided, I think. But what it meant for me practically was that I studied analog and digital photographies simultaneously, um, which is a weird place to come up because I'm in a, place between the sort of old school way of learning it and and the new way that we do it. So a lot of my education was about how photography works practically, what a camera is and what it does and how we figured out what it does and the history there and how film works. And so I think getting that background in addition to like the obvious, like it made me understand my tools better and, and how to approach them it also instilled in me this idea that a real successful photographer is not just a photographer and does not have interest in only being a photographer. They're also a chemist and they're a physicist and they are a social documentarian and they are a journalist and they are all of these different hats, right? I think that sort of thinking came out of being trained by these classical photographers who infuse those ideas going all the way through. And that's really important, right? Even just as a career and your conception of the art form, just understanding the breadth of what photography can and sh- should be for someone at your level. Well, and, you know, when, 
the question that always comes up, well, is, well, anybody can get a camera and figure out how to use it. So why does anybody need to learn? And I think that the answer there is because to understand the history of it and to understand the mechanics of it, you're going to have to be educated, whether that is on your own or, um, well, nobody actually trains on their own, but whether that is like studying through somebody directly or going to school or reading about it or ideally some combination of all those things, right? <laughs> the only way to learn what you're doing and how to do it well is to study with other people and to study all aspects of it. And when, once you in, engage with that, then very quickly it becomes this thing that you can't just pick up a camera and do, right? There's so much more to it. Um, so what is the working relationship between a photography teacher and student? Because my conception of, right, a classical musician's relationship to a teacher, especially as you're starting out, it's very, your teacher gives you XYZ pieces of information and you will learn and execute XYZ things. And then we'll slowly add other building blocks and pieces and then there is talk about artistry and what your individual identity is, but not on a very broad intellectual level. So I'm used to being taught in a very regimented manner. And I don't necessarily imagine photography being that way. Um, first and foremost, it's like studying any other art, right? Which is exactly what you described. Your teacher gives you this set of skills these things to practice, you go and you practice them. And and through that process, you learn to apply them. The thing about photography, where it has overlap with any other visual art form, I think, is that I have always felt that the role of the professor is not to tell you how to do things properly. It's how to do them effectively and then how to do them interestingly. You know, and that, and that sort of builds up and up and up. A photo teacher, especially in like a beginning photography class, like your responsibilities are your students learn how to use the tool, right? They learn how to create quote unquote proper exposures. They learn how all of that device works on a very like surface level, right? So that then they understand like how to begin making their camera interact with the world in the ways that they want it to. So you have those technical aspects and that is usually the immediate focus. And then the secondary focus is to teach them how to look at photographs and how to read photographs and how to engage in the language of photographs. And part of that is like psychology of like how do photographs make people feel? Um, and part of it is symbology. Like if you put this thing into an image, it makes people feel this way or people read it in this way. And here is the historical context for that. And here are the things that you need to be conscious of as a practitioner. And part of that is just a basic fine art education, right? Of like, these are the traditions and the modes. And that gets shared a lot with any sort of formal artistic endeavor. Um, the difference being that for photography, it is this democratic process and it exists as much outside of fine art as it does within fine art. So you have to take that into account too, that on top of like giving them an art history lesson, which no one taking a beginning photo class has any interest in at all. <laughs> you also have to think about like, well, what is their, 
practical connection to this medium because they all have one. Right. Photography is so democratic because it touches quite literally almost everyone's lives. Like you will conceive and interact with photography on some level almost every single day. Right. And it's an interesting history because it is so deeply entangled with every issue around identity and around identity politic and colonialism and bad science and, um, you know, bad sociology and all that. But all of those things have influenced how we read a photograph and, and where that comes from and what we think of a good photograph being, which is also influenced by the history of art and by contemporary art. But photography has always been considered this democratic thing, right? Like anybody can do it if they take the time to learn how to do it. But it's also always been a little bit anti-democratic because it is a thing that costs money to do. And what we're seeing now at every point of technical development in the history of photography, there has been an outcry of people saying, well, now everybody can do this. So it's lost its art. And of course that's never been true. And we're seeing that now with the switch from film to digital, right? Right. They were saying the same shit when cameras became portable, right? They were saying the same thing when Kodak put out the brownie and suddenly anybody with a middle-class income could make images, right? Um, So the, the problem with the argument that something is not photography is that that has never been true and it's been in, everything gets folded in to the conversation at some point. But it's also sort of kind of a Luddite approach, right? That Because there's practically there is no difference between a digital photograph and a film photograph, especially when you consider that people are going to be looking at it on a screen, right? All photography is digital now in, in the end. So what mm-hmm. that conversation is actually about is like how you're making the image. It's the process for the photographer and... 98% of the time, only the photographer is going to care about that and other photographers. Your audience does not care. If they they are going to be engaged with the image because it is an engaging image, they don't give a shit that it was shot on expired ektar or whatever. Um, so this conversation is really about like what you as a photographer feel is important and sort of to reach that understanding, you need to have an understanding of, of the medium. Yes. But isn't there as someone who like goes to a museum and looks at something, there's always that small placard about a, the process and or medium it is done on. And, you know, sometimes it's part of the quote unquote, like metaphor, which I hate, you know, be reduced to metaphor, but like it was done on his dead grandma's, Kodak film, and therefore this picture has this more meaning, yada, yada, yada. Right. Like, I don't want to say that it's not important, because it does matter how you make art, but it only matters to you, and it should only matter to you. The argument that any one mode of artistic creation is better than any other is just the reason to keep people out, right? Shooting on film is unbelievably expensive now. Even if you develop your own film, chemistry is expensive. It's time consuming. It requires space that not everybody has. And um, 
that sort of roadblock is not a good enough reason to keep somebody from developing a photographic practice. For the layman, could you explain if there's any shade or ability when doing film photography um, for room for manipulation or, yeah, is there things that can be done in the process of film that cannot be done as eloquently or as effectively digitally? Oh, absolutely. Um, Film will always have a higher resolution than digital. Um, You will always be able to print it larger, theoretically. Um, It it is a physical substrate. There is chemistry happening inside of the little black box that is your camera. Um, And so it is not only reacting to light, but it's also reacting to the entire range of environmental factors, right? So it is a different skill set, definitely. And it is limited in its means of reproduction in a way that is predictable, right? You know the colors that you're going to get from color film or slide film. You know the contrast level you're going to get from black and white film, and and you can control for that in your development. Um, With digital, you always know that it's always going to look the same, and it's predictable. So that ties into your point, right, that film becomes digital in terms of just its ease to reproduce or be seen in digital spaces. Right, because that's the only way you're going to share your photography Mm -hmm. with other people. Even if you are an artist that prints, like myself, 90% of your audience is going to see digital photographs of those prints, right? Um, And even if you only document your shows in film, they're going to see it on Instagram, which is a digital image. So there is a level of skill to film that doesn't exist in digital. I would say that there's a similar level of skill that exists in digital that you don't have to think about with film. And anybody shooting on film uh, is dwarfed in technical know-how by somebody who's shooting on glass plate negatives, right? So it's (laughs) all relative, right? I find that fascinating because, right, the medium and tools with which you use are ever-evolving. And I would say, like, for the violin, there have been some changes, but ostensibly still it's a piece of wood with more wood on it and some metal strings and horse hair. And that hasn't changed. Right. Um, and, and the question never comes up of where do you fit in, at least on the technical level, where do you fit within the history, right? For, for violin and most instruments, it comes down more to what you do with it, how you play it. There's that similar question of, okay, well, where do you fit in the history of it, right? But with photography, it is your content and your personal approach and your equipment, which is why the question of shooting on film or digital or whatever is less about technical skill, how good you are as a photographer, and more about what you're doing with it. Wow, that's fascinating. Hmm. Okay, so we kind of like kind of hit on pedagogy, but we just came to more of the conception of photography, which leads in beautifully to you discussing, you know, your artistic point of view, kind of break it down for us, and maybe an exploration of one or two of your most recent solo shows, you know, pre-pandemic. Yeah, and that might inform the reason why this podcast exists as well. Hmm. Um, 
I have always been a deeply political person. And that I'm using political in the broader sense of the word. I really am fascinated by national and international politics just as a thing. I I have joked, although it's not funny anymore, but I have joked in the past that um, I follow politics like most people follow sports. It fascinates me on that same level, right? And I don't care about sports for the most part. So <gasps> a person with no athletic ability and um, minor physical disabilities not being good at sports, you know, imagine that. Um, so I've always been this political person, and my work has always had a level of politics to it about identity, which we talk a lot about on the show, um, and about art itself and about art making and about who gets to tell whose story. Those are the questions that really fascinate me. And so my approach to art is very much one of art should be in conversation with itself, um, and it should allow the person, the viewer, an in to conversations that they wouldn't otherwise be a part of. So I make a lot of art about art. I make a lot of art about the institutions that make art possible. I make a lot of art about how we talk about art, how we write about art, and a lot of the core of my work is sort of what is commonly known as institutional critique, right? Um, my work exists to sort of shine a mirror or, or, or shine a light um, on the parts of the institutions that we generally don't get to see, right? Um, because I think that it's important for people who are not artists or don't consider themselves artists or don't even just don't have a relationship to the specific medium in question, that they are part of the larger conversation, right? And that they are sort of let in on it. Right. Because the, the first purpose of art is to make people feel something, right? Um, and if, if, if the goal becomes, as it is for a lot of artists, whether they really realize it or not, to kind of create a level of exclusivity of this personal genius, that's ultimately really harmful, right, to the viewer. Right, but that kind of perpetuates every form of art, commerce, politics, everything, the myth and... Right idolization of genius or exceptionalism for the right and, and raises the <laughs> specter of of what is genius is there such a thing um uh, how do how do we end up you know qualifying geniuses which is a big question in art um because a lot of our geniuses were terrible people or continue to be terrible people um and uh how do you, how do you navigate that so my work is about those sorts of things. And, and my larger art practice, I identify as a photographer because that's my main medium. And that is the practical sort of way of, of answering the question, so what do you do? Which should never be part of small talk. <laughs> but uh, so the quick answer is I'm a photographer, but I'm also a writer and I'm, I very much embrace the identity of an institutional critic. And so part of that, sort of practice becomes creating opportunities like this podcast to sort of have these 
sorts of conversations that we don't get to have otherwise and that are missing from the greater sort of social conversation. Um, so I take that approach to pretty much everything that I do. A lot of people find it exhausting, but including myself sometimes. It's consistent. I changed my um, Twitter bio to wannabe cultural critic recently, <laughs> and I blame you for that. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you have allowed me to be, to level to my full level of pretentiousness, and I appreciate right. the safe space in order to explore that. The first step to it being true is to call yourself that, right? All else follows. It's not true unless you say it is. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the break. Um, thank you so much for listening. And uh, thank you to everybody who has provided feedback to myself and Sean in the last couple of weeks and, and also have been leaving reviews. All that feedback has been really appreciated as I figure out how to make and record a podcast. Um, and uh, also, you know, those reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts and um, other services are the number one way we're going to reach a new audience. So not only are you giving us great feedback and letting us know uh, what you like about the show and what we can improve, but you're also uh, helping us sort of expand the show. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much. If you or someone you know is a artist or a creative, somebody working in the art space and want to get in touch with the show, we can be reached at meaningwhatpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at meaningwhatpod. And finally, in the show notes this week, I am including a link to our newsletter. Um, it goes out every Wednesday. Usually I write it, although Sean wrote it this week because he interviewed me. And it is a place for reflection on the guest of the week, a little bit of maybe an introduction from them, and some thoughts on a topic or two that we cover. It's also going to be the place for any major breaking news on the podcast. So if you want to stay up to date and also get a little bit of extra content from us each week in your inbox, follow the link in the show notes and subscribe. All right. Thank you once again for listening. Please rate and review the show if you haven't already. Um, and otherwise, I will talk to you next week. So as society is um, tearing at, at its fabric in America, just like, falling apart in front of us as we speak. How has that affected your artistic output and or slash, you know, kind of your thought process in however you plan on exploring art, basically, you know, your mental headspace in terms of your art? I think the biggest, most obvious um, hurdle is the fact that I am trained as a street photographer um, and that is at my core of everything that I do. Um, you know, my identity is built around being a street photographer. I go out and I photograph what's available and what's in front of me. And, um, and then the work reflects back on sort of the things that, that, that type of photography reveals about us as a society and as a culture. And in a time when you can't go outside, um, it becomes very difficult to be that kind of photographer. I don't, I don't do studio photography. Um, I don't do still lives really. I don't set stuff up like that. I'm much, you know, it's much more of a found art for me. And so the, the biggest impact is that I can't shoot in the ways that I want to. I can't just drive somewhere and wander around a, a strange place 
and photograph because and there is a virus. Um, so that, that's been the biggest impact is trying to figure out how to work with the parts that I can do, um, you know, focus more on writing and more on conceptual stuff and, and critiquing and, and kind of finding those other outlets, um, and, and kind of creating that pivot. Um, but it also allows me to sort of sit with my own work for a while, the stuff that I have been creating for the last few years and mm. really begin to critique it and think about like, um, what was I saying? Was I saying it for lack of a better word correctly? Um, was I being honest about it? Uh, what, what is actually good and, and what do I just hold as a darling? Um, you know, what am I just in love with? <laughs> and sort of what, what can that teach me moving forward of um, my own relationship to the, the stuff that I make? Um, so it, it is a time of great introspection for somebody who relies on the ability to go outside and not interact with other people to make their art. I have to instead stay inside and not interact with other people. So I started a podcast where I have to talk to other people. Wow, look at look at where we've come. Um, so why not studio photography? Or had had you considered that all at all in your pivot? Uh, yeah, totally. I you know when I was like eighteen or nineteen, I thought it'd be really cool to be a fashion photographer. You know, it's an interesting thing. I'm interested in people and the way that human bodies exist in space, which I think is true for every photographer, right? The, the, the core interest is a form in space and time. Um, and, and so, um, photographing models or photographing product, uh, is a distillation of that, but studio photography is very clinical and it's very cold. And I, I think the main reason that I didn't go that route is because I am the type of person who, um, works best with factors that they cannot control. I, my, my practice is built around creating limitations for myself. Um, you know, I will, I, I use the same camera with the same lens almost every single day. And I, you know, I, I go to the same places and, and repeat them over and over and over again and, and sort of carve out tiny little places and, and re photograph it. But, um, the thing that you get from photographing out in the world that you don't get in the studio. And I think that, uh, one thing that ties street photographers together is that it is so unpredictable and it is so cruel in a lot of ways. Um, because there are days that you go out and it gives you nothing. And there are months where it gives you nothing, but then when it does give you something right, when the world presents you with something or you find it, um, it, it is that much more satisfying having that lack of control and having to just trust that trust in myself and my own abilities that I will be able to find something is very valuable to me. And, and it's also just like, I have to make something out of nothing really. If I'm in, if I, I think the heart of it is if I'm in the studio, I set up the lights, I put the product or person in front of me and I do that. Um, and, and I can allow for some variability and, and there are always things that you cannot control, but there is this, 
um, sort of artifice. artifice. Yeah. This is like controlled right. artifice. Right, and, and there's a feeling yeah. that I can control it, right, and that I have control over all of it. Mm-hmm. Which you don't like, which I find so funny. Right. Um, it's too <laughs> comfortable, and it, it becomes too easy, right? I, I lose interest. And so... Um, Stop calling me out. But uh, going out in the world, the other thing that that does is gives agency to the things that you were photographing in, in a way that I don't feel like comes out of a studio, right? Because in a, in a studio, everything is reduced to object. A person is an object in space. Um, and I, while there is an aspect of that in all photography, I feel like the context that finding things in the world provides allows you to present people and things and places as a fuller presence, you know, with some agency. And it also makes the decision to remove that agency a much more active aspect. So do you want to talk about any of your most recent shows and kind of your process? And because I'd also love to hear not just the process of you producing your work, but also the process of getting it shown in a gallery and all of that. Yeah, uh, one of the beautiful things about going to grad school is that um, depending on where you go, you're almost guaranteed shows and opportunities show up because you are in contact with people that you wouldn't be otherwise, right? And that, that That's a big reason to do it. And after three years off, right, after graduating from undergrad, I was really missing that network, which I didn't really build in undergrad because it's a different sort of environment that's less focused. So a big part of getting shows is, is just being connected in that way. And a lot of the, my most recent shows have been through or at the school, um, that I attend. So, you know, that should be mentioned. Um, but I always have a lot of irons in the fire. Um, I'm the type of person that gets very excited about new projects and jumps at them. Um, and just has to run as many projects as I can until I hit that wall and I go, oh, okay, something needs to go on the back burner. <laughs> something needs to give at some point. Right. And then I just cycle through. And I'm really excited by new things and and new explorations. I love research. And the best research happens when you are just beginning. Um, and so I begin a lot of projects. But... Um, my my shows over the last three years or so have been, in part because I've had the opportunity, they've been a lot about figuring out how to not just present photographs, right, but how to use a space and build a space around them, how to turn them into sculptural objects or objects that interact with other sculptural objects, how to think about a photograph as an object, rather than just an image because a photograph is a three-dimensional thing that has the properties of the paper that it's printed on and the type of photographic substrate that it is and the way that it was originally captured. A lot of that work also explores ideas I have about um, preservability. And if we need to be able to preserve everything forever, if everything needs to be on archival quality materials, or if there is some value in a show that won't exist in 10 years because everything in it has come apart, you know, and and sort of uh, 
confronting my own ego about whether or not the work that I make needs to exist forever. Significance, right, within the large canon of art. Or if it even just needs to exist beyond me, which is an interesting thing for somebody who is very sentimental and really has a bad habit of holding on to things long past when they should. You find that a lot in photographers. Um, This is not an original joke, but we're all hoarders at our core. Well, and you could say almost in a way, some of your work is that, right? Is capturing moments and hoarding memories and images. And so the, just the practice lends itself to that personality trait. Right. And uh, it should be mentioned too, that the way that I print work, I never, shouldn't say never. I rarely photograph for the project that I'm working on. I am always photographing um, or always trying to, but a lot of my projects come out of this massive archive that I've built because I am always photographing. And so a lot of my larger projects involve reusing and recontextualizing old images, which touches on issues of nostalgia and, and holding on to things and memory always comes up in half cooked conversations about photography, but that is very much a part of it, right? <laughs> of like the things right. that we hold on to and the people that we hold on to and the ways in which we f- sort of freeze ideas about people and places that are no often no longer true when we revisit them and maybe weren't even at the time. Um, photography is a very practical way of doing that. And so a lot of my work ends up exploring that, right? I'm reprinting images and recontextualizing images from 5, 10, 15 years ago. Um, And I do that over and over and over and over and over again and sort of build out my own language. So uh, that aspect has just increased over the last three or four years um, in my projects. And a lot of my most recent shows have been about that sort of thing, about um, sort of who decides how we talk about art and talk about photographs and talk about our own experiences and who has agency over the things that we hold on to um, and the things that we care about and the responsibilities that we have as people to um, sort of shield others from our previous experiences and the responsibilities that they have to allow us um, to, you know, hold on to those things and, and to remember that we're all people before we meet each other. Right. Everybody has a history. Right. Those are, those issues have always really fascinated me and they, they are constantly coming up within my work. So I'm just curious, um, do your professors care that a lot of, you know, the work that you show, may not necessarily be what you're quote-unquote immediately producing in your graduate school studies. I'm just wondering, which is right part, partly the question that you're right. answering, if that's needed for legitimacy. So one of the most important skills that you learn in art school very quickly is that you can do anything that you want as long as you can justify it. Right. And, and genuinely so, right? People very quickly smell bullshit. And, and if you are making things up, um, it doesn't work, but 
if you have a legitimate reason for approaching something in a particular way, people won't, professors won't always universally accept that. Everybody comes at something with their own biases. And there is a place and time for certain things. If you are learning photography, you need to be photographing. Um, if you are still a photographer and you have the ability, you need to continue to photograph. It, you have to do it constantly. It, it's like any other art, right? Um, you have to exercise. But um, in my experience, professors will accept an approach like mine if you can justify it, which is I'm still photographing and, um, you know, I have a 15-year digital and film archive. Um, so, you know, I'm a photographer and you know that I photograph and I have built up that evidence, right? But here are the things that I'm thinking about. Here's the research that I'm doing and here's why I'm doing the things that I do. And usually that that is enough to make a concerned faculty member go, okay, even if they are skeptical, you know. And that mm -hmm. is an easier thing to do in grad school than it is in undergrad. Um, mm -hmm. Where you have more agency as an artist and as a person. Yeah, right, absolutely. <laughs> um, you are closer to a peer of your faculty um, than you are just a student you're in this weird gray area but um the i th i honestly think the worst thing that people do in art school and it happens at every level there is always somebody who says i don't want to talk about my art i want to let it speak for myself which it's going to do anyway the trap of that thinking is believing that that is giving the work agency or that um it's giving your audience agency. I think that that is the explanation, but more often it comes out of a place of ego, right? Of like my work. Exactly. My art right. is so profound. It, it, I don't need to guide you at all or contextualize it at all. It just Right. I, I know what I was thinking of when I did it and I have communicated that. Um, but your audience is not going to be working in your medium. They shouldn't be. If you're only... If you are a painter only showing paintings to painters, I like, I don't, I don't, you know, good for you, but I don't see the sort of joy in that. The danger of that approach, and there is always somebody who does it um, in every level of art school, the danger in that approach is that when you put a work out in the world, it's no longer yours. Mm. And your, your name is on it. You theoretically own it, but your audience is going to take from it what they want, whether that is quote unquote right or wrong or misguided. Um, they're going to run with it. So why wouldn't you give your viewer all the tools that they need to understand your work? So you have made a very firm stance on your thoughts on death of the author. <laughs> <laughs> this is where this podcast stands on that. Right. This is where we'll be taking it. Line drawn. Period. Yeah. Moving along. Yes. <laughs> well, because when the death of the author involved, then like often gets recontextualized today in topic of, oh God, said artist is terrible human. Oh fuck. Um, can, <laughs> can we separate? Right. And that is, that is a legitimately tricky space and, and one that photography is particularly grappling with right now. It's interesting being an active part of a relatively young medium because all of our heroes exist within the modern era. Um, and they all lived 
to some extent, fairly documented lives. It, photography was invented in the late 1830s. And so, you know, it's all there. We, in photography, um, it has existed alongside in the United States, the fall of slavery and fights for civil rights and like women's liberation. And, um, it, it, it has been developing right alongside of all of those things in ways that a lot of fine art mediums don't, um, because they have this history long before it. Um, and it also exists. Yeah. And it, and it exists within the relatively modern, modern as in contemporary realm of media, right? Newspapers then radio and television and like, like they have all existed, um, at the same time. So we have documentation about photographers from day one that we don't have for a lot of other practices, right? Leonardo da Vinci will always be somewhat of a mystery because no one ever existed within the time of the recorded realm that um, knew him, right? He was racist and had a foot fetish, and on Tuesdays he... Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so there, photography is grappling with that. Right. And, and that a lot of the people that have defined the genre are also very problematic um, like, as they have been shocking. throughout history. But the difference for photography is because it is all so contemporary and it is, the history is so short. So we don't have that many people to look back on. Um, and the people that we do have, a lot of them are still alive. A lot of people that defined photography as we currently know it, you know, American documentary and street photography in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and then in the 70s, they are still alive or people who knew them directly are still alive. And and that sort of changes our relationship with them. Do you find that, I mean, I don't know if you can really answer that, because compared to like a tradition like painting, which like every brushstroke is there's 600 there's x hundred number of years of context that you have to somehow be different from and evolve and grow but kind of synthesize do you feel like because there's a briefer history of photography it's a little more freeing at all in like seeing the weight or pressure of the context or is it all the more painful because it is so real and so immediate a bit of both um I think the biggest mistake that a photographer can make is thinking that they exist outside of art history because it has been so short. That's so stupid. Who thinks that? Do people actually think that? Yeah, a lot of people. Um, Oh, God. Especially young photographers who are like, well, I'm not a painter. I'm doing this. So I don't need to study art history, which is like you can see how they would get to that conclusion. But the the way that we photograph, the way that we understand a photograph, um, the way that we compose and, and the way that we present all have bases in painting, right. And traditions of drawing and is influenced by all of the same art theory that exists everywhere else. So the freeing part of that is that there is a context for everything to exist within, right. Um, and a reason for all of it. And there, that means that there's also something to push against. Um, but it is tricky too, with such a short history that you are directly on top of everyone else and you are 
in conversation with everyone else and you're still trying to define your medium, right? Um, because we only just relatively recently started thinking about photography as an art medium. It's a new thing. Um, and we are still, by we I mean photographers, we have this entire history of having to prove ourselves as artists, right? To, to prove that we belong at that table. And at every point of the way, every technical development, there's been an argument that it is less artistic, right? The things that make it easier make it less artistic. And so we have to re-up that fight, right? Of, of no, no, this is art. And that brings back, that brings us back into the conversation about, you know, can a real photographer only shoot digital? Well, fucking yeah, of course they can, right? They're still a photographer. They are still photographing. They're using a different medium. It is how they do it and how they approach it and how they talk about it that makes it art. But that also means that we are still having that struggle to prove that we are artists who belong at the big kid art table. And you don't see that as much. You see it, but you don't see it as much in painting or in sculpture because the those modes of artistic creation are more cemented in fine art. Yeah, and it's almost like it's um, commodifying struggle and effort and then tying that to artistic value and necessity, which just like we can kind of tie that all back to capitalism. Right. So therefore capitalism defining artistic value, which we've heard that before. Right. Like any of the most democratic things, photography has very effectively become a capitalist endeavor and it is at its heart a very democratic sort of process. You can build a camera at home and you can mm-hmm. develop your film with instant coffee and you can, you know, you can you can do it all at home. That's very difficult. So, if you have capital, you can do those things more easily. And that's not exclusive to photo either. Right. Like if you can afford good paint, you know, your paintings will be supposedly better. You are a better painter. If you can afford good materials, your sculptures will last longer. If you can afford a formal education, you will be a better writer, you know. Um, right. And I've heard about how um, like the accessibility of something like GarageBand has come up, has like democratized like the very masculine realm of electronic music and how I've read plenty of articles like the, the more recent wave of more feminine woman identifying electronic artists kind of stems from just there being less barriers to people just having the opportunity to experiment and learn. Right. And photography has always seen that too, right? Mm-hmm. Because for photography, the one consistent roadblock has been money the benefit of not being an art of fine art practice is that you can't go to art school for that. And so right off the bat, a lot of women took up photography because it was something that they could do in the home, right? Which they were held to because it was the 19th century. And there are a lot of really amazing photographers who were women just photographing their backyards, photographing their estates. And of course they are still of a different social class because they can afford to do this. Right. But that was sort of the first democratic thing is that if you have access to the means 
Anybody can do it. And that's not to discount any education that they would have access to because they could go to museums or they could study drawing under somebody, right. but um, they wouldn't be allowed in those institutions with their art. So sexism. So sexism. But, <laughs> but there's a beautiful thing in photo that even if they don't get talked about, which is finally changing, at every era of photo, there are almost as many women making important work as there are men. And a lot of times... Oh, that's delightful. There are women making more important work or making the men's work possible. And it takes a little bit of finding, right? But it's uh-huh. this sort of equalizing thing and, and makes it a much easier thing to get into if you are 17 and going to college and trying to figure out who you are and what you want to do. If you take a photo class and see, and not just you know women, but if you are non-white or if you are um, LGBT, right, you can... There, there is a photographer out there who has made work and probably many who look like you and have similar experiences to you. And if you have a photo professor who can point you in the direction of those people, you have, you have an in, right? And I feel like that exists through the entirety of photography in a way that it doesn't exist through the entirety of a lot of other mediums. The joke in just like the internet space for queer people is um, there's always that white guy, that gay cis white guy that is an artistic photographer and his entire series is models and porn stars naked, mm-hmm. but you know, with, with mood lighting and like they make their career off right. of that. A lot of those. And it's, I mean, there's an audience for that work. So that makes it legitimate. It's all of us on Instagram at 2 right. Thank you very much. I've, I've done some of that work, you know, right? <laughs> um, I think everybody does in one way or another. Or a lot of people do. I shouldn't say everybody. And then you get an education and you think, you know, you are introduced to people who push back against the sort of fundamentals of, of that who ask you, well, why is the person naked? Right. They're hot that way. Thank you very much. And that can be your answer, but you know, then you have to confront that, that, that this, you made right. this photograph because they are an attractive person in a, whatever, um, that word attractive means, right. They are an attractive person mm-hmm. and you wanted to see them naked, which is legitimate. But it carries baggage um, that you have to be willing to confront um, and deal with. And and if that is your only reason of doing it, right, is to take photos of traditionally attractive people without any clothes on, that's fine. You can do that. You have to be honest about that being why you do it. Yeah, so that actually, a silly question, but maybe not so silly if we can kind of parse it out, is... If someone takes a selfie, and you know, with not necessarily the intention of it being art, can it be art? Can someone recontextualize it as art? And is that already a thing people do? I feel like I've, I'm asking a, a tired question, maybe. Um, absolutely. Terry Richardson has that right. fucking show of, of just photos he stole off of people's Instagram feeds. Um, so that is exactly that. And that's art, I guess. The core difference between a selfie and a self-portrait, and I have an entire lecture on this that um, that I that I give every semester that I teach. It's one of my favorite lectures. 
um, is the difference between those things. And it comes down to how you took it, right? The medium, you, you know, was it a cell phone and or was it your camera? Those things, but both of those are flexible, right? And the purpose of it, what is your intent with this image? And that can change, right? It can start as, I, I was feeling myself today, so I took a picture of myself, right? Um, and then if you put it in the context of, art whatever that means um it becomes art right yeah do then your students then take selfies and or self-portraits of their camera yeah and then we have to have a conversation about well is this actually art or did you just forget to do the project um it was like nailed it you know and and that is one point where in a lower level class you have to go okay you can turn in one image of yourself you can take as many as you want and i want to see your contact sheet but you get to turn in one or two of yourself and then you need to go and take pictures of other people. My art is just about myself and my entire conception of being. So it's just going to be selfies. Thank you. Well, and that is, that could be legitimate. You know, there are no rules until there are, you know, it it is the kind of thing. Right. You won't be getting a good good grade in Mason's class, but you know, you, you could choose to choose. But if you have a legitimate intent there, Right. If you're not doing it just because you're lazy and and don't want to take photographs, right? Then make that argument. And and if if it's genuine and it's convincing, then sure, in my class you can do that. But but it's going to be a steeper battle than taking pictures of yourself and your sibling and your parents and your cousins or whatever. Oh God. Um, is that is that a lot of what you get turned in as homework? Yeah. Yeah, and that's not unusual. When you are a new photographer, it's really hard to get people outside of your family to pose for you. And it's even more terrifying to photograph strangers, right? Um, Especially when your photo teacher tells you that there are legal implications of that that you need to be aware of, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is of people's families and, you know, photograph what's around you. That's fine. It's it's how you go about it, and and so that that brings us to the real answer of your question is it all comes down to intent, right? the The purpose with which you put it into the world determines whether or not it is art, and then um, that intent can be changed by you. You can decide that this thing is in fact art, or this thing is maybe not, um, but it also gets changed by your audience. Right. And we see that especially in sort of internet meme culture, right? That idea that nobody owns anything anymore, but also that like a a thing can be sort of digested by the zeitgeist and be turned into something else. If you put it in the world, it might turn into art and that might become the intent of whoever then shares it. Yeah. And I think this is a great place to say thank you, Mason, for talking about yourself. Not everyone loves to do that. Thanks for the opportunity, Sean, and uh, you're welcome for a new project and place of possible employment. And you're cool. you're only <laughs> you're only here because of me. <laughs> I'm gonna collect the check and right. run. <laughs> if it pays my bills, I will take it for five years until I get my own spinoff, right. which will be under my studio label. So I own you. How, what's your, the percentage cut you're taking? We're not making any money. Well, when we make money, what's the percentage cut you're taking of mine? Most of it. We'll we'll negotiate. I'll sue you over this. (laughs)
I'm gonna. Everyone's here only because of me because I say so. So I get most of. I'm stopping the recording. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?